everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, Brian. Hey, Brandon, what's up? Oh, I don't know. Just the usual. Uh, we are back, of course, with lightning rounds. And for our topic this week... I thought we'd talk about something that is, I feel like provokes an emotional response for some people, but is a, a pretty important part of critical care, whether you like that or not, which is the general topic of end of life care and um, managing patients whose prognosis is such that kind of our default approach of pursuing uh, full throttle uh, efforts at curative care um, may not make sense for them because of where they're at in their disease course or in their life. Um, that's just something that we deal with all the time. And you know how we tackle that and how we address it is, uh, I think, an important part of critical care. There's obviously a lot that can be said about this topic. It's an entire specialty, you might say, of palliative care, which mostly addresses these topics. Um, but you know, it's something that we do as well. So let me ask you to start, uh, just to kind of remind us all of our positions. The majority of what you are doing these days is a lot of surgical critical care and uh, neuro critical care. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. And nowadays, I'm mainly doing medical critical care, although I did a lot of the same as you in the past. And I, I just say that because it, I think, um, affects the patient populations we see, and therefore how some of these things come into play. So just one thing to bear in mind as we get into the rest of this. Um, so let me ask you, in your current milieu with the patients you're seeing, to what extent would you say that this type of uh, work, <laughs> this these issues are something that you feel like you tackle and make your responsibility versus somebody else? And that somebody else may be uh, another service like palliative care, um, if you're working with surgical patients, the surgical teams, or even, you know, uh, your own attendings, someone like social work, how much do you make this your problem? Yeah, that's a great question. So first off, let me, let me let's back up a second. You, you mentioned that this is a specialty in and of itself, and it is, right? Palliative care is a specialty in and of itself. And that's becoming more and more ingrained into critical care. We actually at UK, through our medicine ICU, so I don't directly... Uh, relate with these guys, but they actually have a palliative critical care fellowship that combines palliative care and critical care. Uh, and I know some physicians who have done this, and I think it's it's really important. And I think this is a, I won't say this is something that's that I enjoy, right? I don't think anybody enjoys this sort of thing, but I think it's, it can potentially be a very rewarding, and for me, unexpectedly rewarding part of critical care. Um, in that it's something we don't necessarily think of when we go into critical care, but it's certainly something that needs to be th thought of because of just the nature of what we do, right? And uh, and like you said, we could talk for a long, long time about this. And in fact, I'm actually going to be doing a talk on this at the American um, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses conference in Philadelphia in May. So if you're coming to that uh, and you want to hear more about palliative care in the ICU, um, come to my session and we'll we'll talk for an hour ish about it. So, uh, but getting back to your question, how much of this is my stuff versus other people's stuff? Um, I sort of think of my role as an intensivist 
as caring for the whole person in the ICU, right? And if that if that means that I can't quote fix a person and make them better, get them over their critical illness, then I think my job is then is next to sort of care for them in the best way I can through whatever time they have left with me. Now, sometimes that means that their life will end in the ICU. Sometimes it means that I will care for them until such time where we can get them to a more appropriate place like hospice or sometimes even home. Um, you know, working in a specialty ICU like neuro or surgical, like you said, I work with neurologists and neurosurgeons. I work with a whole different gambit of surgeons in the surgical ICU. And so it's not really my patient one-on-one directly like you would say in a closed medical ICU. Uh, but I think that in my experience, a lot of these other services, this is something that they're less comfortable with and um, they don't really know how to go about doing this and they're happy to leave it to someone else. Uh, and I don't mean that in a way that they're happy to like abandon their patient because most of them don't want to do that. They want to be involved. They just don't really know how to be involved. And so palliative care gets consulted a lot. Uh, but I think there's a lot that we can do just as critical care specialists that doesn't necessarily need to have palliative care involved. Um, palliative care is a great service and they're certainly super knowledgeable, but like every other service in the hospital, they're very busy. And if I can keep some stuff off their plate that I don't need them to take over, then I think that works out best for everyone. Yeah, I, I'm of mixed feeling about the role of a palliative care service in some of this. There's certainly, uh, they can be excellent at this. Um, but in part of this is coming from some of the places I've worked had little to no availability of, of palliative care. So then it really fell upon the critical care teams to do their own palliative care work. And I do think it is a core part of, you know, our competencies. Um, but you know, sometimes I feel like, uh, delegating this to another team. And it, like you said, especially if they're busy can be kind of a slippery slope into it starting to feel like, um, you know, it's like consulting IR to place a line or something. It just turns into sort of a, a a service, which is kind of modular and disconnected from the patient. Whereas really these kinds of discussions are just deeply woven into the understanding of the patient and what's going on with them and what's been going on with them. And, you know, certainly helps to have a relationship. Uh, and those are the things that, you know, we are best at as the primary team, especially if you've been following the patient and managing things. And of course, you know, even when you have another service like palliative, they should be involving us. It should be a, a group discussion. Um, but there can be kind of, you know, pros and cons. Now, certainly if you're bad at this, then <laughs> it's a real plus to be able to refer to someone who's good at it. And I also find, um, you know, you're talking about working with surgeons, they, they add their own kind of spin to this because I think we all have our biases, right? I, I've found that for a, a surgical patient, say somebody who had surgery, first of all, I think surgeons are often reluctant to get involved and you know do surgery on someone whose prognosis is is unclear. And that we've all seen, you know, you ask someone to, hey, can you come to this operation? They say, well, I don't think the patient's going to do well. I'm reluctant to kind of, as they say, they're going to die. They don't need to die in the OR. Um, but if they have done surgery, I think it does create a you know, kind of a, a relationship and, and they often feel invested and then they may be a little reluctant to quote, give up on the patient. You know, they're like, Hey, I spent three hours in there fixing up their abdomen. Um, they should, they should survive all of this. 
Um, so that's that's their bias, I guess, and we all have our own. Yeah, and I think surgeons sometimes, especially, and I don't, I don't mean to sound like I'm picking on surgeons, but surgeons, like you said, they're invested, and it sort of feels like a failure, right? If you know, I did this operation and they didn't survive, then I've somehow failed to do my job. Um, but I had a surgeon one time tell me, and I thought this was kind of profound, every patient you have is going to die at some point. And so if life and death is your benchmark for success, you're going to lose every single time uh, because of because you're never going to keep someone from dying forever. right? So he said the better way to look at it is to provide the best care we can in the moment. Uh, and if I can get them through whatever this illness is, get them back to some sort of meaningful life, then that's success. Uh, if I can't, but I can ensure that they have a dignified end of their life and get to be comfortable and not suffer, then that's success too. Yeah. Uh, it's the old fight club line on a long enough timeline. Everyone's survival is zero. We start to think of surviving as a, a, a dichotomous yes or no thing, but that really doesn't make any sense because if that's your perspective, in every case, everyone's survival is zero. It's really, it's an amount. It's how much time do you have left? And that lets you start weighing it out versus factors like quality of life and the burden of the care you're giving them and kind of adjudicating everything. There's no, you know, all or nothing here. Um, people survive for a, a period of time. So uh, let me ask you in your world, because again, this pertains to, you know, as someone a surgical patient or whatever, neuro is certainly its own thing as well. When do you try to think about these questions ranging from, when you first encounter a, a patient, um, all the way up to the, when you've had them for maybe several days and you're getting a sense for how sick they are to, you know, they've been with you for, for some time maybe, and maybe they're settling out into some kind of a stable state like a lot of the neuro patients do. Um, when do you think is the best time to tackle these topics or does it depend on the patient? Yeah. So I think, you know, when we talk about palliative care in the ICU and, using that service versus what we should be able to do ourselves. I think there's some core functions and I think this is one of them, right? Every, every person working in the ICU should be able to sort of sort out a patient's prognosis and when to start having this conversation. And I think everybody should be able to have this basic conversation of goals of care, right? Where are we going? Um, and how are we going to get there? Uh, I think you're right. It, it, so it matters a lot if I'm, in the surgical ICU or the neuro ICU, um, you know, obviously if I'm in the surgical ICU, the surgeons are much more involved because typically these patients are people who came in. I don't do trauma in the surgical ICU. So these are people who came in for some sort of elective or at least quasi elective surgery, right? We do have the occasional uh, patient who comes in, um, you know, with some sort of emergency condition and needs surgery, but those typically go to the trauma service. Uh, with a couple of exceptions, you know, vascular disasters, um, the colorectal person who comes in who's sort of known to that service but has had some, you know, emergency. Uh, but, you know, the, so these surgical patients typically come in for a planned thing. And so that needs to be a bigger conversation with all parties involved. Um, neuro, most of those folks come in, they are emergencies, right? They come in having a big stroke or some other kind of neuro event. But I think when to have that conversation is early, um, when you start to sort of get this feeling for 
the outcome is maybe not going to be great. Um, I will sometimes start to lay the groundwork with, you know, they're very, very sick and their best case scenario may not be what they want. Um, you know, if I, I kind of start with, if I feel like, Hey, there's a reasonable chance that this patient could decompensate and I'm not sure coding them is the best thing. So maybe let's start talking about, do we want to just make them a DNR? We'll continue doing everything, but do we want to start there? And so that's where I kind of start is, do I feel like we're headed in the wrong direction and the the next step may not be the best step? Yeah, it, it kind of turns into two separate topics, right? One is, to what extent are you even pursuing any aggressive measures versus just kind of comfort? And the other is, are you going to do like CPR if they code or innovate them? It, you know, for any international people, we'll usually hear say you know, they're DNR. We wouldn't do chest compressions or maybe shock them or they do not intubate. We wouldn't put an airway into them. Um, and usually, you know, if you're going to have the discussion, you probably should have it pretty soon because, of course, it could come up at any time. I mean, they mm -hmm. could have a cardiac arrest six hours into their admission. I, yeah, and the worst time to have that conversation is when you're facing it, right? Sure. Nobody's going to make a rational decision when they're sitting in the room, their loved one's pressure is 50 over 30, and you've got the, the nurses are pulling the code cart in the room, and you sit down and go, do you want us to do this, right? Because in the moment, they're going to go, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't even think straight. So the time to have that conversation is when it's not urgent. Yeah. Now, I... I, you know, some people will always have this conversation as part of their admissions. You know, do you want to be a full code or a DNR or whatever? And some patients have made this decision already, and that that's great. You know, they've had thoughtful discussions about it, maybe ideally with their PCP or somebody, but perhaps their previous admission. Um, honestly, when that has not happened yet, I find this somewhat infrequently to be helpful to address very early on, like when you're admitting a patient. And I say that because it's a question that is sort of meaningless at that time um, because you don't have the relationship to discuss it in a, a long-term sense, meaning with relationship to who the patient is in their life. And in the short-term sense, relationship to their current illness, you don't really know anything yet. You don't know where it's going or what the prognosis is looking like. So. I mean, you literally ask people these questions and they'll be like, uh, <laughs> and I mean, it's yeah. based on what it, you give them a couple sentences of what it means to have CPR. I mean, it, it's like literally giving the, the shortest shrift possible to an important question. So in really, and I, I really truly think this, and I think there is support for this both <clears throat> anecdotally and, and somewhat in the literature that the vast majority of people want the same thing when it comes to resuscitation, which is that if there is a chance for a good long-term prognosis, meaning them recovering from it, <clears throat> then of course they want everything you could do. And if not, then they don't. But realizing that you often don't know that early on, they would probably want initial attempts at resuscitation, which would mean whatever you're doing, pushing on their chest, putting in tubes. And then if it looks like they're not going to recover, then they wouldn't want prolonged life support, uh, you know, fully dependent on machines, not waking up, things like that. I mean, that that really is what almost everybody wants. And when we focus on just stuff like chest compressions, it, what we're really focusing on is what we're doing, 
I mean, we mm-hmm. care about that stuff because we're there. They're not conscious. They don't don't really care. Um, and in reality, patients don't care so much about what you're doing. You know, the procedures and the steps and logistics. They care about the outcomes. Um, so it, it's this actually can be a somewhat simpler question to answer, which is to say that in many cases, again, unless it's been addressed in a lo- more long term sense, yes, we'll do, we'll try to resuscitate, we'll innovate, whatever. And then if you're not going to get better, then we won't prolong that. So in a, you know, in the EMR, that means they're probably going to be a full code or whatever. But it, they, you know, if they're not going to get off the ventilator, then you don't want to put in a trach and send them to a facility or something like that. I, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. But, you know, from the perspective of like maybe a relatively healthy-ish person who has an acute event, that's what most people would want. Yeah, and I think, you know, you bring up tracheostomy. I think so... I will have what I consider to be sort of like cut points, right? That this is sort of a time where we make decisions, um, you know, and that's one of them, right? The patient's been intubated for a while. Like you said, most people who even would say, I don't want to be intubated, they don't really mean they don't want to be intubated. They really, they mean they don't want a pro- prolonged experience on a ventilator, right? And And if you sit down and really have this conversation with people, a lot of them would say like, I mean, if I have pneumonia and you think that I'll die without being put on a ventilator, but a couple of days on the ventilator and some antibiotics, I'll be better Then, yeah, absolutely. I want to be intubated. I don't want to live the rest of my life in a facility on the ventilator. And I think those are very different questions. And so I will often say we can have that conversation later, right? If we intubate you and it becomes clear that you're not going to come off the ventilator, then we have a talk before we do a tracheostomy as to what's going to happen next. And it buys time too, right? Because, you know, once you're on the ventilator and I can't liberate you from the ventilator, it's usually there's no hurry, right? You, we have some days even, I mean, I can, I don't want to leave you intubated too long, but we say seven to 10, 14 days, whatever. I mean, really a couple more days here and there is not going to make a big difference. So we can have some time to think. Now it's good to have that conversation when the patient can discuss it because of course, after they're, devastating brain injury and their innovation, they may not be able to express their wishes. And now you know that they had said they wouldn't, you know, want to live forever in that state. But from the perspective of just which box am I checking? Are we going to do CPR? Yeah, perhaps they are in that case. Yeah. And I think uh, I tell folks, there's very little actually that we do in the ICU that we can't undo. And so if there's any equivocation, if there's any doubt in your mind, then let's do everything. And like I said, that buys us time, right? If you're in extremis and I put a tube in you, put you on the ventilator and I go, I mean, honestly, you got bad lung disease and you're not in great health. And if I put you on the ventilator, you may not ever come off, but if there's any doubt in your mind, then let's do it. And then we can, you know, once you're stable, we can have some time to really look at your prognosis. We'll know more, et cetera. Yeah. And that brings up what I think is the one of the most important aspects of this, which is prognostication. Because really what most people want to know when you ask them, you know, what direction to pursue in their care is what are the chances? You know, if you're saying, do we want to do a a lot of invasive, perhaps painful or uncomfortable, just, I, to, I like the word, the the burden, just kind of generally what does the burden of medical care look like for them? versus what they would obviously prefer, which is to have no medical care. Um, right. Yeah, do they want that? Well, it depends on what they're going to get out of it. What is the yield? So is, is there the possibility of them 
fully recovering and getting back to the previous life they have? Uh, is there no, no chance of that, but there's a good chance of at least surviving and having a, a somewhat mediocre functional outcome? Is there essentially no chance? I mean, that's what they want to know when you ask them this question. So if you can't answer that question, you can't really meaningful and meaningfully advise them, nor can they meaningfully make a decision. And that's the rub, right? Because to how well can we really prognosticate for any of these disease processes? It, it, at most, I'll have to say it, it depends, right? Uh, it depends on a lot of things, including how smart we are, when we choose to do it. Time is probably the biggest help. Trying to prognosticate for most diseases when you first meet the patient, meet the family, and they're first hitting the door, oh boy. I mean, that that is getting to the point of like reading tea leaves and, you know, being an oracle. Um, a little easier farther along. And ultimately, uh, I think it depends on our psychology. Like how just how confident are we? Do we just believe that we can predict things? Or are we more, um, you know, sanguine in our attempts at reading the future? Yeah, one of our palliative care docs says something that I really like. She says she likes to break things down into best case scenario, worst case scenario, and then what she feels in the moment, at least, is what most likely scenario. Um, and and I think that's really helpful because a lot of times you give them the best case scenario and you go, "Well, this is the this is the best possible outcome, right?" I look, I'm seeing your brain injury, and I know that this is the best possible outcome for them. And the family might go, that's not good enough, right? So then it doesn't matter what the likely, most likely is because at, at their best, they're not going to be where they want to be, right? So I think that can be potentially very helpful in making those decisions. Now, like you said, it's really, really hard to predict this stuff, um, probably harder than we even would like to admit. And so, you know, when you, I think when you're going to give a best case scenario like that, you have to be pretty generous, Um is this really the best case? I mean, maybe not, but I'm making it a little bit better than I think it's likely to be because I don't know for sure. Yeah. And the difficult thing is that, you know, for many patients, and, and you could probably understand this if you imagine yourself as the patient, death is essentially the worst possible outcome. Now you could argue about that, but that's how people see it. And therefore they would want to say that if there's any chance of avoiding death, they would want to try that. So they're, what they're asking you is, is there any chance of surviving this? And they're asking not just, is there a slim chance, but zero? And can you ever really say there's zero chance? Eh, I mean, you never know. And so that's a hard question to answer. Now we could say it very, seems very unlikely, um, but to honestly say no to that is tough. Now the more time passes or the sicker they are, but what I, I think a lot of this boils down to is that prognosticating from any truly acute event is never a, a certain thing. More and more days and weeks and months pass, and you could start to say that this is more clearly where the patient is landing, or of course, if the patient dies and you know what happened. But it's very different from our ability to prognosticate the uh, arc of disease in chronic illness. And to me, this is the easiest way to split this up. I honestly don't know what's going to happen after most acute critical illness, especially early on. But I do know what's going to happen to your chronic disease state. I know, for instance, that your end-stage dementia is never going to get better. 
That's just not a disease that ever reverses. So while this episode of aspiration pneumonia, will you could try to treat it, maybe they'll get better, maybe they'll get off the ventilator this time, maybe not, who knows. But I know that even in the best case, like you said, the best case would be we snap our fingers, you get back to the same state you were in before this illness. And that state was bed-bound, non-verbal, barely able to eat, not able to really do anything or interact in any way. And I know that that's never going to get better, and most likely it will be worse after this. So th that's I can take much more confidence in my prognostication from that perspective and say, almost it doesn't matter what's going on this episode. Forget this disease that we're dealing with today. Let's take it more as a marker as a sign to us where this patient is in their long-term disease process and say, this is a good time to sit down and think about where we're going with that. Because if we know that based on these markers and where they've been functionally, this patient is getting towards the end of their life, then what does that mean for our decisions? And I can speak very confidently with regards to those things because we know what, in this case, dementia does to people. Whereas, you know, what does this aspiration pneumonia do to you? Well, we can play some numbers, but I'm much less confident in that. Yeah, uh, I heard um, Ashley Shreves gave a great talk at Smack several years ago called How to Diagnose Dying. Um, and it was really interesting. She showed a lot of data and some graphs, and I like graphs. Um, we're talking about trajectories of dying from various things, right? And one of them is the sudden acute death, right? Trauma, acute sudden cardiac death, where it's just, that's it, life, death. Um, and then things like cancer, right? Where you're just going to sort of slowly get worse until you die, um, assuming that's terminal cancer, right? Uh, and then things like chronic illness, like, um, you know, COPD exacerbation or, um, you know, some of these chronic, chronic heart failure. And that graph I thought was the most interesting in that it kind of goes along and dips down and then it pops back up and then it goes along and it's slowly going down that dips down sharply and it pops back up. And she said, each of these dips is where they come into the hospital, right? And they're at the brink of death and we pull them back, but notice they don't return to baseline. They don't ever come back up. They come up back up to slightly worse than they were when they came in. And if you look, if you step back and take the wide angle view, the line is slowly going down. And she said, and this is why you get families who come in and say, but the last time they were in the hospital, they came back from this. And the last, you know, because in their mind they did. But if you if you step back and really look at it, they didn't come back 100%. They came back 99% maybe, but eventually they're going, they're continuing to go downhill. Uh, and I thought that was really helpful to me to visualize how, like you said, I don't know what's going to happen in this acute moment, but I know their chronic problems are not going to get better. They're just going to get worse over time. And so while we might get you over this pneumonia, your chronic kidney disease is going to be worse. Your heart disease is going to be worse. Your dementia is going to be worse. Uh, and I think that needs to be brought up when we talk about prognosis, right? It's not just the acute event, but what's the, your overall quality of life going to be like? Yeah, I, I also remember that talk. I found it very uh, formational. And I, I also agree that the, you know, those acute organ failures, that trajectory is the most, one of the most important ones to understand because you, know, you said that over time it, it downtrends, and that's true. But that also means that each of those acute episodes of exacerbation when they come to the hospital, 
they can they can be extremely sick from them and yet recover now yes mm -hmm. not a, recover 100 percent, but that's good for us to understand because when we see these people with chf exacerbations copd exacerbations um you know their renal failure whatever they can be, look like they're on death's door and yet there is no underlying uh like degenerative or irreversible process that has you know progressed in a way that we can't fix they those are all treatable things and therefore, they often will recover from misadmission, even though they're very sick. Uh, so, so like when you're early on and you see these people who look, you know, they're on all this support and on the vent and this and that, and you're like, wow, they're going to die. And then they get better. You're like, wow, I'm surprised. Well, that is often how it goes. It's more in the long-term sense that, you know, they recover, but now they, they still have kidney failure and heart failure or whatever. You know, the goal is to slow down that overall downtrend and to try to limit the number of these exacerbations because they're not good for them and so on. But absolutely, I think that's a good thing for people to look at. And um, on my blog, uh, Critical Concepts, critcon.org, I, I have a, a few posts on this topic and I, I have those graphs in there. And I really encourage everyone to understand this. You know, the difference between the, the, the you know, that true sudden death, you know, Peter Saffer used to call the, the heart too young to die. That's what CPR was invented for. 20-year-old patient suddenly falls over from a an arrhythmia that was congenital. You know, if you can restore that patient from their acute event, they will be completely well and normal and live another 80 years. Compared to the 85-year-old patient with dementia who uh, is essentially, in a long-term sense, already dying. You know, if you can restore their, whatever their latest acute illness is, it doesn't change that overall trajectory, really. You know, versus compared to these organ failure things where there's kind of a mix where there's acute episodes that they recover from and so on and so forth. I think this is so important for people to understand because that lets you take these patients in their admissions and not just tackle their immediate problems and the details surrounding those, but step back and ask, what does this mean in the longer term, bigger sense for this patient? Because, you know, maybe this is not your job to deal with or think about. But I promise you, nobody else is going to. You know, if you're, if you're like, a, you know, outpatient problem, you know, <laughs> refer this to their PCP. No, this is not going to happen, all right? The time to, to address these things is, is probably now, and the person to do it is probably you, if for no other reason than because you can't expect anyone else to. Yeah, I agree. So uh, how, now that we've sort of got, we've tackled this, how do you decide when to have this conversation Let's talk about the the big problem is how do you have this conversation, right? Because there is a definite art to this, uh, and I've seen a lot of people do it well, and I've seen a lot of people do it horribly. Sure. I think it does depend on when it's coming up and in what context. Um, <clears throat> in the patient who clearly has um, you know, chronic conditions that are kind of bringing them towards the end of their life, I will sometimes try to do this at the time of admission, because once you get inertia on some other things, it can be a little hard to undo them. Um, and maybe, I mean, usually they'll still come to the ICU, but you can kind of set the right tone for it as essentially a palliative admission. In most other cases, <clears throat> they're going to come, you are going to make initial efforts at resuscitation, but I'll often have a conversation saying, look, there are a lot of reasons to think this is not going to go well, but I'm reluctant to try to tell you anything for sure for the reasons we talked about. But let's say we're going to give it a go. We're going to do everything we can. 
to try to set this patient up to fully recover. But we're going to circle back in a fixed amount of time. We're going to give a sort of trial of critical care. And maybe say two, three days, maybe the end of that week, something like that. It doesn't really have to be any specific amount of time, but <clears throat> that sets people up to think that there's a good chance this is not going to go great, but we are going to get a little bit of time to see. We're not going to burn any bridges. We'll do everything we can, but then we're going to meet again and say, where are we going? What, what more do we know about the trajectory? Does it seem like this patient is indeed not going to recover? Do we need a little more time? That's certainly possible as well. And then depending on where you're leaning, we can um, make a decision to say, we're just going to go more towards a, a comfort direction or we're going to, uh, there seems to be a reassuring trajectory, even if it's slow, the patient is getting somewhat better. Uh, and so we're going to keep doing this. And then you can kind of keep doing this iteratively. Again, there's no right amounts of times really to have these conversations, but that kind of sets you up from the beginning with the mindset that there is a possibility of recovery. There's a possibility of dying here. And there's the possibility that we all make a decision that in the best outcome here, it will not be sort of acceptable. Uh, so we're going to focus on what we can do, which is uh, comfort and limiting the burden of medical care and really probably trying to get you out of the ICU and the hospital where you don't want to be and you don't want to eventually die here. Yeah, I think it's important to lay the groundwork, like you were saying. Um, obviously, sometimes we don't have time for that. I've had times where on admission, I have to say, this is not going well, um, and we have to make some decisions right now. But if we've got time, I think it's good to lay that groundwork. And I think one of the hardest things for families, and I think mostly we're talking about families, right? Because for the most part, a lot of our patients in the ICU are not really fully engaged in their care for whatever reason. Uh, but the, one of the worst things for families is to not see it coming, right? To, to hear nothing but sunshine, nothing but positive things, and then the bottom falls out. Uh, when most of the time we knew, we knew it was coming. We saw it coming all along, right? We look and we'll go, God, the labs are looking worse and I can't stay on top of this and I don't know what's going on. Uh, and so sometimes I will literally, literally just go in the room and say, hey, listen, I want to let you know that I'm not throwing in the towel here. I'm not giving up and I'm not saying it's hopeless. Uh, I'm still, we're still working as hard as we can, but we're not staying on top of things. Things are getting slowly worse. And I think there's a very real chance that something could go wrong tonight. Uh, and I want you to be prepared for that. And maybe I'm wrong and I hope I am, but I don't want at two o'clock in the morning to have to make a phone call to tell you that your loved one died and you didn't see it coming. Let's, um, let's share if we can, this is a great time to complain. Some of our pet peeves for this process. What are the ways that you think people often go wrong when they're addressing all of this? Um, and you know, what are things that you wish people would, would stop doing or, or avoid? Oh man. Um, so we could go, we could do multiple episodes of just this. <laughs> um, I will tell you, I think some of my biggest pet peeves are one, not being willing to have the conversation, right? Just avoiding it. I've seen plenty of people do that where literally they will just avoid going in the room um, because they don't want to have the conversation. The, the next biggest pet peeve, I think, is having the conversation 
but in a way that protects you, the provider, at the expense of the patient and the family. And what I mean by that is I'm going to not be frank with you. I'm going to kind of beat around the bush. I'm going to give you false hope. I'm going to use a lot of big words and medical terminology so I don't have to say things that are hard. Um, and sometimes that is just not knowing, right? We just don't teach people how to do this very well. Uh, and sometimes I think it's a defense mechanism because I'm uncomfortable having this conversation. And so I'm not going to say certain words. I'm going to use big medical terms and I'm going to try to get out of the room as fast as I can. What goes with that is, you know, on one hand, not truly giving people a shared vision for what you think of the case. <clears throat> you know, we'll all be writing notes and every other service will saying, you know, poor prognosis, you know, it's like futile, patient's not going to recover. And then you're, you're not telling pa patients or their families that, it, yeah. you know, in whatever words. And along with that is, I think, not making recommendations. You know, you just go and you say, hey, what do you want to do? And they're like, I don't know, I'm not a doctor. Um, you, you really, I think the goal here is to understand what these families want and that what they want as a channeling of what the, they think the patient would want, which is not always the same thing. Their job is to try to share based on what they know of the patient, what their values are. And then our job is to say, based on that, here's what I suggest we do. I, I don't, I mean, I'm not asking for the patient's like sister's recommendation on tracheostomies. What do they know about tracheostomies? I, I want to know what this patient would, would value or want in this, you know, disastrous situation. And then I'll say, you know, you know, based on that, here's what I suggest. We do a tracheostomy or, or whatever. Um, when you don't, you know, take any kind of position on these things, you're really doing them a disservice, even if you think you're, you're being very like open-minded and allowing them to make their own decisions. It's like asking them, you know, what type of stress ulcer prophylaxis they want. Yeah, exactly. I, this, that's, so that's my other big, big pet peeve about stuff like this. And I think it's sometimes stems from this. It's uncomfortable to make this recommendation. Sometimes, you know, I don't want it on me. I want it, you know, well, that's what the family wanted to do, you know. And that, that, that's not nice to them either. Cause then they start feeling like they killed the patient or something like that. Cause it's not a decision. It's, they're just telling you what they think someone would want. But, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, so many good points right there. So, you know, I think sometimes we have this idea of medicine historically has been very paternalistic. Like we just make decisions for you and take away your autonomy. And so we're not going to do that anymore. So now I'm not going to make any decisions for you. It's all on you. And that's not fair, right? I, they're not experts. I wouldn't go to an accountant and be like, uh, okay, here's, I'm in horrible financial problems and I'm going to owe the IRS a million dollars and go to prison. What should I do? And he goes, well, I mean, I can't tell you what to do. I, you know, what do you want to do? Right. You wouldn't expect that. So I, I tell families, listen, here's the thing. I, I will give you my opinion. I will tell you what I think you should do with the caveat that if you don't want to do it, that's okay. I will within reason do whatever you want to do. If you ask me for something that I think is unethical, if I think it's harmful, if I think, Hey, that's not really in line with what we've been talking about that you said you wanted, then we'll continue to have that conversation. I'm not going to do anything harmful or unethical. Uh, but if, you know, I think, hey, this is futile and we should just make this person comfort care and be done with it, and you want to press on with aggressive care, okay, we'll, we'll do that. I, I might not agree with it, but if it's not harmful, fine. Uh, but like you said, I think people want to 
they want to have some advice from their professionals, right? They, you know, for your, I'm seeking your expert opinion. Please give it to me. Yeah. I think uh, another way that we go wrong a lot of the time is by, um, how do I put this? Sort of being biased in our decision-making processes by focusing on essentially our own emotions versus the actual patient's interests. So we'll say things like, you know, I, I wish this patient were DNR because uh, I don't want to code them. That seems like a drag. They're, they're old, they're frail. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. And this has no meaning for the patient who, you know, let's say is unconscious and won't notice or care. And, you know, perhaps a 5% chance of survival is, is worth a shot to them or something like that. Um, you know, these are not perspectives that, you know, and we'll, we'll put it in the, the theoretical interest of the patient and say, well, you know, he wouldn't want this. And we'll say, I wouldn't want that. You know, make me a DNR right now. If I get pneumonia, just pump me full of morphine. People say stuff like this. Mm -hmm. and But it's all, it's not real. You know, in reality, and this has been studied, you know, physicians who get critically ill, for instance, they want just as much attempts at prolonging their life as anyone else, sometimes more. It doesn't matter what they said before because it was it was just a game before. It was all Yeah, theoretical. it's very easy for me right now yeah. as a healthy <laughs> Uh, 40-something-year-old to say, oh, uh, yeah, I would never want that. And then when I'm staring down the barrel of the gun and know that if getting a tracheostomy means that I can see my kid, grandkids get born, ugh, maybe I do want a tracheostomy, right? Yeah. It's a difficult thing, and I think you're right. Sometimes we divorce ourselves so, so much from it that we make it an easy decision. Yeah. And what we're really saying is, you know, from the healthcare perspective is like, how, you know, what does this mean to us, the care we're giving? Oh, this guy is still yeah. here in the ICU on the van or whatever. Well, yeah, that, that's no fun, but the, the stakes for the patient is them being dead. So it's not, it's not quite the same. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, you, you, I want to circle back to what you said about putting this on the patient basically they're killing uh, or the family, they're killing the person by making this decision. Um, I think that's a very real fear, right? Is that if I make this decision, I'm killing grandma. Um, I'm, you know, killing my dad. And so I like to say that that's not what you're doing. You are, they've made that decision, right? Their body has shut down to a point that that's inevitable. Yeah, the disease you're, is killing them. <laughs> you're respecting their wishes and allowing them to be, to go with comfort and dignity. Um but, you know, I think there is this hesitation on families, too. Like you said, what if, what if, what if? Um, I used to work with a nurse, and I won't, uh, out of respect for details and privacy, we'll change some, some details here. But we were talking one night about a particular type of cancer. And, um, you know, a lot of us were sitting around going, why in, the, why in the world do families put their loved ones through this treatment? They always do poorly. They always die, blah, 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 blah. And without even thinking about it, we had not realized that this other nurse who was sitting nearby, kind of adjacent to the conversation, uh, had lost her husband from this type of cancer several years before. And, you know, she very nicely, and thinking back, I think she would be totally within her rights to just yell and scream at us. We were being pretty disrespectful. Uh, but she just very calmly said, because what's next? Because you, what if? And you'll always ask, and she said, you know, years later, I still say, what if? What if we had done, what if I'd done that one more treatment? What if we'd done that one more surgery? Would that be the one that made the difference and he'd still be here today? God, what a bunch of guilt to carry around, right? Like, I, 
you know, what if, I don't know, right? We've been talking about what if, and I can't predict and prognosticate. How would we expect families to do it? Well, and that's a perfect example of the other bias we have, which is, you know, thinking that we are, are good at prognosticating, understanding outcomes based on just our observations. We are not in a position based on anecdote to understand the outcomes of, of anything. You need to use data if you're going to try to stand on any kind of a leg and saying, this is how things go after this disease. Because just sitting in the ICU seeing these patients, you don't know. You know, you say, everyone who gets this surgery has complicated outcomes. You don't know that. You just see the yeah. ones who come to the ICU. There could right. be millions of people who have good is outcomes. so limited. Yeah. Or the neuro patients, great example. These patients seem like they do horribly. They just sit on the ventilator and never get better, not realizing that maybe four months after they leave the ICU and go to their facility, some of them continue to have recovery. And then you don't know except, you know, that one patient in a thousand who comes back to the ICU and, you know, high fives everybody. Um, yeah. We have an incredible bias on this stuff. So you, when you try to say, well, this patient's not going to do well based on my wealth of experience, your wealth of experience is no good here. It, it, it is too limited to understand. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we kind of dumped on surgeons and other primary specialties a, a few minutes ago about why they don't want to have these conversations. But I think one of the reasons that they don't is because they do see that more than us, right? The transplant surgeons see all these guys who get transplants who are in the ICU for months and we go, oh, they're so awful. Why do we do this to people? They see them in clinic every month that come in and they're doing great. They're living their lives. Uh, like you said, the one out of a hundred that comes back to the ICU to say thank you, um, we we see all these people who we send out to rehab or wherever, and we go, oh, they look awful. Why do we do this to people? Uh, the neurologists they see all these strokes who come back and are living their best lives, right? And so I think that's one of the reasons sometimes they're reluctant to sort of quote give up. Yeah. Yeah, and really, again, we're focused, we're saying, why do we do this to ourselves? This is a bummer. <laughs> we yeah. don't care about the patient. And that, I think, is the other uh, error we often make, which is focusing on interventions, not on outcomes and values. And again, we're talking about these conversations about codes and stuff. Well, do you want CPR? Do you want dialysis? Do you want to be on the ventilator? Do you want to be on CPAP? What about BiPAP? Would you like antibiotics? What about fluids? Do you want to go to the ICU? But what about a step-down unit? Would you want to go to rehab? What about long-term? Patients don't care if they even understand any of this. But, you know, from our perspective as clinicians, and I think especially for novices who have not really learned to get good at, you know, speaking in layperson terms, that's just what they're used to. And that's what, you know, we're thinking about. That's what we're writing in notes and writing orders mm -hmm. about. Uh, you know, really, I try to take away almost all of this stuff. And, you know, really even bring up as little as possible. Because if you ask the question, they'll feel obliged to answer. But this is not like ordering off the menu at Arby's here. You know, their role, again, is to tell us what they think they would, you know, value and, you know, their perspective on the situation. And our job is to make a plan for it. And you don't even necessarily have to discuss all this at length or ask, you know, how much they want. I really often think that the more detail you give people, the more confusing it is and the more they feel like they have to weigh in on it. That's our problem. Uh, yeah. You know, their job is to, you know, give us the, the big picture view. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, if you were going to go take a trip, right? We're going to go go all go out to San Francisco here to SCCM pretty soon. 
uh, you know, what if I went to the airport and I and the I said, oh, I need to get to San Francisco, and they said, okay, well, uh, we have this flight, and uh, we could take you up to twenty thousand feet and go over the Rockies and then come down here, or we could go. I mean, I don't care. I want to get to San Francisco. I don't really care how you get me there, right? And that's sort of what we should be doing, right? Is where do you want to get to? What's the destination? And now we'll figure out the best way to get you there. Um, but yeah, we tend to focus on, do you want all these things done to you? I mean, yeah. I don't know. I mean, is it going to get me better than, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the other caveat there, I think, and which makes it even harder for these poor people, you know, when you're talking about what they value and the outcomes they would favor, understand that even then people often don't know, you know, you ask things like, you know, what would you consider an acceptable outcome here? You know, what do you value in life? And, and even to say that, well, what's most important to me is being able to, to do X, Y, or Z. And then if you couldn't have that and it wouldn't be a life worth living, that's, that's great information, but they don't even really know that that's true. People don't know what their life will be like and if they find it acceptable. And this, you know, this too has been studied. People have had life altering events and disabilities. They lose a leg, they lose the ability to uh, talk or eat or something like that. Um, many times their satisfaction with their quality of life after these events is not meaningfully changed compared to before. That is sort of a set point that you have. And yes, initially, of course, it's not good, but you you adapt. And when you see this patient who's quadriplegic with decubitus wounds and they're trached or something, and you're like, wow, how can you live like that? Well, you get used to it. <laughs> how, how do you yeah. live like that? Well, you were, you don't go from here to there. You go there over time. How do you, you know, how are you 600 pounds in bed and you can't move? Well, you were 550 pounds and then you get to 600. It's a process and you adapt. So now I don't know if you'll find that to be a good life, but you know, oftentimes I don't know if you know either. So there's just, it's important to have that dose of humility too. Yeah. All right. What else should we say about this, Brian? Well, I don't know. You know, I think talking about end of life, we could talk a long time about the nuts and bolts of making someone comfortable and all that. But uh, I think this, I think is a nice, good stopping point. Um, just discussing the realities of how to arrive at this decision, how to help with shared decision-making and have this conversation. Um, maybe we can save the actual nuts and bolts of palliative care in terms of symptom management, et cetera, for another time. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the important things for people to take away are recognizing that this is is difficult, you know, making it multidisciplinary and really getting everyone's help with it. You know, being willing to tackle it and not avoiding it, but at the same time doing it with a lot of humility and not overconfidence in how well you can predict the future, how much you understand about what people want. Um, and, you know, just viewing it as not... I mean, not one of the easier parts, probably one of the harder parts of what we do. And yet, of course, avoiding it is, is no better than avoiding, you know, treating pneumonia or something. It's, it's part of what's going on with patients. Um, and I, I will put a couple of links in the, the show notes here for, I have a couple of posts on, on my blog, which get into a lot of this in more detail, which may be helpful for people. Yeah. And like I said, if you're coming to uh, the NTI in Philadelphia in May, come see my talk on this. We'll talk all sorts about management of symptoms and how to have this conversation in more depth. So, all right, that'll do it for us for now. And we'll talk to you guys soon. 